good people. You are listening to Feel Free to Deviate, the podcast about people, their careers, and their relationships with success. My name is Jim Turbert, and I'm the host of the show. The guest on this episode is Christina Willis. I met her when she was a student at Wellesley College. She was a physics major who worked in the photography and video area, and now she's a laser scientist, among other things. She actually works for a quantum computing company right now. Do you know what a quantum computer is? I sort of do, but honestly, it sounds like science fiction to me. I know it's not. It's, it's just hardcore, cutting-edge technology. I'd recommend reading the Wikipedia page about it, but I'm not sure that's going to clear it up for most people. I'm sure you're familiar with the concept that digital information is stored in zeros and ones. Well, evidently, the bits and bytes are actually, they're called qubits that make up the information that quantum computers work with can be either zeros or ones at any given time. I don't really understand how it works, but it's a thing. And yeah, I guess I should have asked her if there is a simple explanation for normal people online. Not, you know, not normal, but you know what I mean? People who aren't super scientists. And for all the super scientists out there, I'm sorry for calling you abnormal. You're, you're, you're perfectly normal. Anyway, I believe Christina does a better job of explaining her twisty career path than I can. She's a curious soul who's not afraid to learn new things. So settle into whatever you're doing and get ready to hear all about the career of Christina Willis. I talk to a lot of different people on the show, and Mm -hmm. it's nice to talk to you because, you know, we used to hang out in the cage and stuff. (laughs) Yeah. But I have to say that the main reason I've asked you to be on is because on LinkedIn, your title is Laser Scientist. Mm -hmm. And I think that's cool. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I love lasers. They are pretty cool. Remember my I Heart Laser shirt? Did I ever wear it to the cage? You probably did. And I, I probably <laughs> commented on it at the time, but no, I don't remember it. I'm curious if the title of laser scientist is the actual term of, of what you are, or if mm-hmm. it's just kind of a colloquial thing that laser scientists call themselves. Yeah, so laser scientist is a proper title. I do not, my current role, I am not a laser scientist. Uh, I have it kind of like in my bio on my LinkedIn still and held that role with that title uh, for years. But what I studied in graduate school for a degree of optics, that's what it says in my diploma, was laser development. And designing and building lasers is its whole very specific field. And there are laser scientist jobs advertised by different companies. So it is sort of a, I guess, I don't know, term of art, if that's the right word, but it is it is a title that does get used in the industry. Are there conventions of laser scientists? And when you go there, do you just talk about how cool laser, like what, what, it, what are the topics at the laser, <laughs> the laser conference? There are, more broadly, there are a lot of optics conferences in which there will be talks about lasers. There are some conferences that are specific to lasers, and they will deal with, I guess, all different kinds of lasers. You want to put a laser on a satellite to measure the atmosphere. You want to put a laser underwater to measure something underwater or perform communications underwater. You want to use a laser to cut and weld things. You want to use a laser for dermatological applications or for LASIK. So you have all these sort of different kinds of lasers doing all these different things. And it's actually really interesting to me 
having even been in the field of laser development and working on sort of high-power LIDAR systems, which were the LIDAR is the, the light version of radar. So that's that's the kind of laser you would put on a plane or a satellite to, to measure something or map something. It's very easy to get very quickly outside your little niche and walk into a talk and say, oh, this is about lasers, but I actually don't really know what's going on here because it's an entirely different wavelength or an entirely different application than what I typically work on. So lasers, even though it's compared to the broad world, a very niche field, it has a lot of structure within it in terms of types of laser systems and what they get used for. I jumped right into lasers because I'm all excited about (laughs) lasers. I guess that's the adolescent male in me. They appeal to everyone, but I think they appeal especially to adolescent males. What I should have done instead of jumping into lasers is to ask you to introduce yourself. Sure. So my name is Christina Willis. I am a senior analyst at a company called Cold Quanta, which is a quantum technology company. And I arrived at where I am by way of lasers. So I studied physics as uh, an undergrad. And actually, I went to college knowing I wanted to study physics and knowing that I was excited about lasers. So I was uh, actually, as an adolescent, quite excited about lasers in general. And, of course, Wellesley, uh, where I went to college, is where we met. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think, did I start working in the cage sophomore year? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was, I think I worked, I think I worked three years. You know, you were there for a while. It could have been four, it could have been three. I really don't remember. Yeah, well, so this is a complete aside, but something that absolutely broke my heart working in the cage was what you didn't realize and what I didn't realize is that you had given me a master key to the entire art building. I didn't realize I had a key that would open every door in the building. And so I was just using it to open the door on each side of the cage because that would make sense because that's my workspace. Yeah. And one day you saw me open the second door and went, <laughs> you're not supposed to be able to open that door. <laughs> and we realized it was the master key and it got taken away from me. <laughs> and I was so crushed. I was, no, I had this power in my pocket for years. And, and <laughs> as soon as I realized I had it, it was taken away. It was yeah, such I, a bummer. <laughs> I have no recollection of that, but it, it seems like a pretty big oversight. <laughs> well, I never I never got a chance to, to, uh, to use it for for anything other than going to work but i remember being being quite distressed with oh i get a regular key now okay (laughs) (laughs) i don't think that i actually had the power to reproduce master keys so i would say that the 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 fault of that was with the lock shop and not with me (laughs) yeah it was an impressionable moment for me for sure and um Uh, do you think of yourself as being a, a a successful person i think so yeah, I would say that I, I feel like when I have, you know, set out to accomplish things, I am generally happy with my results, which I guess could be one definition of success. Hell yeah. That's a great definition of success. <laughs> I think. I, I think you're successful, which is another reason why I've asked you on, not just because of the cool title. You just mentioned physics. I remember mm-hmm. you were gung-ho about physics back in the day, mm-hmm. and you, you got mad at me. Because I called it math. <laughs> I don't. That's funny. I don't remember that, but I would totally <laughs> see it. It's not math. It's physics. <laughs> okay, whatever. <laughs> math, physics. It doesn't matter to me. I mean, you're a laser scientist. You 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 have a degree in physics. You work for a quantum computing company. I think it's fair to say that you're kind of nerdy. 
Oh, definitely. I mean, I remember one of the things I remember about you is when you first started working, you had a website about dragons. Uh, I don't. I don't think I did. It was a long time ago. I can't imagine I'm missing, messing you up with somebody else. But anyway, you're okay. also deep into ballroom dancing. I know yes. that you've not like you've gone out and you've become an EMT. Mm-hmm. And then you just told me you're doing something called Fire Academy. You have a high level of deep knowledge jobs, and you also have these kind of deep knowledge extracurricular activities. And that's kind of why I think you're successful because you do all this stuff. It takes a lot of energy and willpower and I don't know, intensity, I guess, <laughs> to to do that. And that's I guess that's kind of the Wellesley way. That's sort of why I, I think you're successful. But so how do you get into this stuff? Like how do I how do I adopt a new hobby? Yeah, like of? how did ballroom dancing come about, for instance? I had a friend in high school who did dancing at a studio and she, you know, she invited me to come to the showcase where she did her routine with her instructor and she was actually I think a delightful rarity in dancing where there are some people who are really committed to learning both the lead and follow roles in dancing, which, you know, of course, some people feel is a little taboo because traditionally the male leads and the woman follows uh, and people tend to kind of confine themselves to that role. But there are some people who are like, I'm going to learn both sides. And so she was one of these people who had learned how to lead as well as follow. And so she was able to teach me. And I got to dance with her and I really liked that. And so when I was in college, it was my freshman year, I thought that that would be an interesting thing to do more of. And I went looking for it and I tried out a couple of different places. Like I tried out some studios and figured out that MIT had a had a ballroom dance team that as a Wellesley student, because we can do the sort of cross-registration, I was able to join that team. And... I really liked the environment. I liked the people. I thought the dancing was a lot of fun. And then, of course, you're dealing with a bunch of engineers who are talking about the angular momentum of a spin as you're doing a samba roll. So uh, it physics. was kind of a... Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> it, it kind of melded something that was already a little familiar to me that I enjoyed with something I was also very passionate about. And I liked the people. And so I did that basically all four years. Nice. Super cool. Do you still do it? I haven't in a long time. Because you're too busy uh, doing EMT stuff? (laughs) Yeah, well, it's it's one of those things where where Boston was a really kind of easy and great environment to do it because every university had their own team and there was lots of social dances. And I had a team where there was structured lessons I could go to. And then I moved to Japan the year after I graduated. And I had a friend actually at work who did ballroom dancing and took me to a couple of the classes that she went to, but it's all in Japanese and it was kind of hard for me to get to. And it just didn't have the same appeal to me as it had in the sort of more diverse atmosphere that I'd had in, in Boston to just go to this one studio and go to a class where I can't speak the language. I, could, I, I knew a lot of the dance moves because I learned both American styles and international styles. And of course, in Japan, they're doing international styles. So I was able to do the moves, but it just wasn't the same environment. So I kind of give up on it while I was in Japan. And then when I went to graduate school, my university didn't have a team. And so if I'd wanted to to keep up with it, I would have had to you know, drive way across town to get to where there was a team. So I, I ended up doing a little bit of sort of swing and blues dancing 
and then started dating someone who I tried, he was interested in learning and I tried to teach him, but it always ended up kind of like in an awkward argument about, no, but the teacher said this and actually do that. And so it ended up just being something that kind of sort of faded out of my usual routine. Does that make you sad? Maybe a little bit. Like it was something I really enjoyed, but at the same time, I wouldn't have time for other things that I have discovered that I really enjoy if I had continued committing as much time to that activity as I used to, right? So it's we all have limited bandwidth. And there's a certain number of hours in the day. And if I hadn't moved on from ballroom dancing, I wouldn't have had time for, you know, another of, a number of other activities that I have, you know, practiced and enjoyed. So it's it's just life, you know. One, one door closes and another opens, as they say. But you keep busy regardless. Oh, yes. This is actually almost a, it's sort of the double-edged sword of my existence is that uh, there are so many things that I find interesting that I engage in. I feel like I go into many directions at once and learning how to prioritize and say, no, I actually need to say no to this thing is kind of one of the challenges that I live with. <laughs> Board is not a problem I have, that's for sure. You went to Wellesley. Most people who go to Wellesley have, uh, they're, you know, they're pretty much doing okay right from the start. Not everybody, but it's usually some con kind of a combination of intelligence, organization, and, you know, a little bit of privilege. I'm just wondering what sort of background you have. So I was born in San Francisco to uh, a couple who were originally from Kansas who met in San Francisco. And my father was in the Navy for a long time, but he was he was 50 years old when I was born. So he'd been out of the Navy for a long time and he'd been doing computer science. My mother uh, had studied anthropology, so she had a master's degree in anthropology, but then kind of moved on and was more interested in early childhood education. And we moved from the Bay Area in California when I was six to New Mexico, and then I lived in New Mexico basically for the decade of the 90s. While we were there, we had some, I guess, initially difficult uh, economic circumstances. There was a business that my parents were going to purchase, and it turned out that the people who were going to sell the business weren't exactly honest about the situation. So we ended up where we had no home, and my parents had no employment, and we were just kind of resetting. There was a period of my childhood where things were kind of tight. Uh, I never went hungry, but there was the period where it was like, you don't eat out at restaurants. That's not a thing that we do. And if we eat out, we go to you know Burger King on Wednesday, where they have like <laughs> two whoppers for three dollars special or something That's you know so there deal. was that there was a period of time <laughs> that that was things were like that and then my dad found a pretty good job with the state of new mexico and my mom was able to sort of finish school for early childhood education she got a second master's degree and then we moved to the island of crete what uh <laughs> that's awesome it was right as i finished eighth grade we went there for about seven months. The whole family had been in a car accident where we'd suffered head injuries. And Whoa. my mother, who'd had a head injury years before, had identified learning a new language as the right way to do cognitive therapy for a head injury. Or one of the, one of the effective ways right. to do cognitive therapy yeah, for, for a head sense. injury. And my father had sort of gotten his pension from the state of New Mexico and retired 
and she had sort of finished her program and it felt like this is a natural point where we should move to a country where we don't speak the language. Uh, and that is how we decided to go to Crete or how my parents decided to move to Crete. And that was a very interesting experience for me because I had never, I had never learned a foreign language. I had never lived outside of the United States and it was a big kind of cultural awakening for me. Totally. It's a great lesson for anybody being a <laughs> foreigner. Yeah. So it was, you know, I started taking, like, trying to learn Greek, and I really enjoyed, like, learning a new language. And then there were just, like, simple things where, you know, going to the grocery store and hanging in the in the deli area, there are just skinned rabbits, like, Mm -hmm. hanging in the deli and having that be kind of shocking to me at that age and all the different things in the grocery store that I'd never seen before and just, yeah, interacting with people from a different culture and kind of trying to live in it and navigate it was, I think, a really valuable experience for me at like the age of 14 to kind of see how other people do things differently. And then from there, we moved back to California where I went to high school and I was able to test into a private high school that I really loved. It's called York. It's in Monterey. It was kind of the first time in my schooling that I felt really at home. Uh, when I'd been in public school, I had felt like a lot of people just didn't care about being at school. They didn't want to be there. They weren't interested in learning. And at this place where it was expensive and you had to test in, <laughs> almost everyone was like, wanted to be there and wanted to study and wanted to learn and were there with a purpose. I felt like I had kind of like found my people. It was also a huge shock to me because I had always gotten A's without putting a lot of effort in and mm -hmm. suddenly I'm getting C's with that same level of effort. That's also a good lesson. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, and I think it's a lesson. I had the impression that it's a lesson that a lot of people learned when they arrived at Wellesley. Yeah, no, I'm sure, I'm sure. I got to have or, that or lesson. Any, or, any, or any time going to school, I, I think. Yeah. You know, just, just a big change. It, yeah, so it was a big shock that I had to, like, actually put serious effort in to, like, make A's like I used to. Uh, and it was it was a rough transition, but I... I made some really good friends and it was a really positive environment for me. So I, but I had to, I had to learn how to, that I have to actually like really put my shoulder into it if I want to get a good grade here. So I was there for two years before I uh, went to college. So I actually kind of skipped a year of school. Chronologically, I should have come back as a sophomore in high school, but it worked out that with the amount of, I guess, coursework that that I had I had done in terms of language and various, and you know, my mom had homeschooled me, I was able to be admitted as a, a junior. So I spent, I had two years of high school before heading off to college. <laughs> wow. Okay. So you grow up with uh, a teacher and a science guy mm -hmm. and, or I guess you would call him a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like science guy, but sci I like it. I like sci it scientist works too. Was your household sciencey? Yes. I want to say that my mom actually, like when I had projects for science fairs and things she would kind of push me to do pretty structured stuff i was taking sort of advanced math in junior high and my dad would always help me with my math homework and he's a very patient patient dude i was not very mellow about learning math when it frustrated me so there's definitely a bunch of times that i would be like why is it like this one kind of blow up about it and he'd be like okay <laughs> it was the same when he was teaching me to drive he 
he was super chill about it and my mom couldn't handle it. So she had to like not be there. And something would happen where it's like, oh, you're about to hit something. He wouldn't be like, stop. He'd be like, please apply the grape with force. <laughs> super <You> calm. Know? <laughs> yes, super, super chill, dude. So uh, it, was, it was good for my kind of temperamental nature at that age. Yeah, I, a friend of mine was telling me that his dad was also rather calm about teaching him to drive. He just kept saying, just keep in mind, the other cars will also move. You can rely on them also getting out of the way. So you don't have to drive off the road every time you feel threatened. Um, <laughs> it's, it's about keeping it cool. But um, yes. I really, I like the idea that you, you felt at home at school. Because I, I don't think that happens a lot. I think that a big issue with a lot of people is that they don't want to go to school or they feel like a, an outcast or something. And mm -hmm. you're saying that you felt like you were in the right place. I also have assessed <laughs> that you sound like a confident person. Right off the bat, without even hemming or hawing, you say that you feel like you're successful and that whenever you set out to do something, it works out. Do you have any career missteps? I would say something that was a big challenge for me is a little more kind of interpersonal. I grew up an only child, so I, I had half-siblings, but they were all older than me, and I didn't grow up in the same household with them. So I grew up an only child, and social interaction and making friends or maintaining friendships and feeling accepted was a really painful part of my childhood. I went through this process of visiting different friends in different places before we headed off to Greece. And that was interesting because I got thrown into a bunch of different social environments very quickly. And I had been kind of struggling going through elementary school into sixth grade. I think I started kind of getting a handle on how to be a little more social and be better at maintaining friendships and, and junior high wasn't torture, but I was definitely sort of the the nerdy kid. Finally, when we left New Mexico and then we visited these friends, we visited these friends, we visited these friends, and then finally got to Greece, I felt like that ability to kind of be a chameleon and to adapt to a new social group and to get along kind of solidified. So that was a big step for me in terms of being able to just like meet people and make friends and talk to them and get along well. And then I would say that something that had kind of carried over even through that time period, is that I felt like I talked too much. And I do believe I did. It wasn't just my perception of myself. I would have one-sided conversations with people sometimes. Or if they wanted to, you know, be an active participant, they'd have to kind of butt against me a little bit. I recognized that I thought that was a problem, that it's important to have, you know, mutual exchange with people and have conversation both, go both ways and to, like, ask questions to the other person about how they're feeling. And so I had a reckoning about that with myself. I had I found friends in college who were willing to kind of put up with how I was. Uh, and you know, I had a good friends. social life in college, exactly. But I had this kind of reckoning with myself after college of like, no, I wanna actually fix this. I want to become a good conversationalist. That is important to me. And so I actually did a lot of research and reading and tried to consciously practice these these things, these skills I was reading about to be a better conversationalist and develop my emotional intelligence. Because, you know, I still struggle with this idea of being accepted and 
rejection and trying to, I don't know, armor myself with the skills to get along well with people and to have good conversations and positive interactions was really important to me. So that was something that was a big focus for me when I was living in Japan. I feel like I made good progress. I feel confident now. I have become the sort of person who can show up to a cocktail party or a networking event and have it be a total room full of strangers. And I feel like this is great. I'm going to meet some new people. I'm going to talk to them and make some new friends. And But that was very much a, a conscious process of learning and intentionally acquired. So who, who I am today is in part something I built, not something that came naturally to me. It didn't come naturally to you, but now do you actually go through a rubric in your head every time you're meeting somebody <laughs> or is it more natural now? Ah, uh, it's more natural now. Okay. <laughs> well, that's good. It, and it also depends heavily on the person. So there are some people with whom it just feels natural and easy and organic to engage with, and you have this beautiful flowing conversation, and then other people aren't as easy to engage in conversation. Then I have to kind of like pull out my like my set of algorithms. All right, so <laughs> I asked this question, and they weren't really responsive, and they're using this body language, and so maybe let's try and talk about this, and I'll like kind of redirect. And a lot of time it goes naturally, but sometimes it it is useful to still have that that rubric in the back of my mind to pull out when things aren't going super smooth. Sure, if you have to. But you know what the nice thing about, say you're at a party, mm-hmm. there, there are other people there. You can just blow them off and go to somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Though exiting conversations gracefully is definitely... Man, that's a that is a tough one. Well, uh, if you're at a party, you can just say, "Oh, I gotta go talk to that guy." <laughs> sure. <laughs> yes. But yeah, yeah, when you're um when you're a parent, you have to go to a lot of gatherings with other parents, or mm-hmm. parties like birthday parties, and you show up, and then there are other parents, and people feel the need to talk about work or talk about this or talk mm. about the other thing, and sometimes it's just not what I want to be doing. So mm-hmm. you go through a rubric. I go through a list of excuses how I can get out of the conversation. <laughs> I should work on um, what you're describing. But I have a thousand different ways to bail. <laughs> well, I want you to send me your list. All right. <laughs> okay. But that would require me writing it down. I, <laughs> I did. <laughs> you're saying that you worked on this this whole system while you were in Japan. But isn't the social situation different over there than it is here? Definitely. It was so it was a an interesting environment because I had my expat group and I had my Japanese work group. And so I was actually housed in a building specifically designed for visiting foreign researchers. So there were people, scientists from all over the planet living in my building, my neighbors, and they formed my social group outside of work. At work, it was all Japanese people with one exception who was someone who was Chinese, who was an expat who I think had naturalized to Japan. So he was very culturally integrated. So I was the youngest and the only woman, (laughs) the only non-Japanese person. Also, you're a very tall woman in Japan. That must have been crazy. (laughs) That has been shifting in terms of how tall people are. So if I went to Tokyo and I got on the subway, I was rarely the tallest person. There would usually be someone about my height. 
But when you look at older generations, so if I was at like a tourist site, we went to, you know, Ushiku Daibutsu, which is like one of the tallest Buddha statues in the world. There are tourists there from all over, including you know, older generations of Japanese people. And I remember this just itty bitty, almost waist high to me, Japanese lady looking up at me. And you know, she had to be like in her 70s or 80s. And she like looks up at me and she says, what did she say? There's a, I, there's a word for big, which also means tall. And I forget what it is. But she like looked at me and said this word in Japanese was like, big. <laughs> yeah, that's me. <laughs> I remember me. I, like, like looking at her and nodding like, yes, I'm very big. <laughs> yeah. Marlene and I are tall. And when we visited Japan, students were always wanting to take their picture with us. And um, and they would approach us at t- tourist places because they, ha- they had assignments in school to speak English with people. And like they had lists of questions to ask us. Evidently, there's a, a Japanese radio show that teaches people English on every Sunday night or whatever. And most people who listen to it are very old people. So, like, old people come up to you at these these tourist places and, and just start up conversations, which is really cool. <laughs> it's really nice. It's but I, I was told afterwards by a Japanese friend that that was that was probably the reason because all these people who listen to the radio show flock to the tourist destinations <laughs> to speak with tourists. Interesting. But yeah, it was a super fun place. Also because Marlene is about as tall as you. I think that maybe even taller, I'm not sure. And I, I, I'm a relatively tall guy, not compared to Dutch people, but I'm a relatively tall guy. And I have and I had a big beard. I have a big beard. Mm-hmm. And I, I think yeah, we were just like a novelty couple. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it was. It was super fun. I liked it. I want to go back. Yeah, I love Japan. It was it was a very, very amazing place and i found one of the things that fascinated me about it is it's in some ways so just the same as the u.s in terms of just modern technology and just the way certain things are done but then in other ways it's just polar opposite and so it's this fascinating combination of just like home and totally different yeah well that's like there were taxi cabs yeah taxi cab you fly a taxi cab works just like in the u.s but the driver has a thing that opens the door for you and the <laughs> side mirrors aren't mounted at the front of the front doors. They're actually mounted far up on the hood. And so it's same but different. Yeah. Actually, that seems like a better place for them now that I'm thinking about it. Probably. Because, you yeah. know, you don't have to divert your eyes as much. The most disappointing thing about being in Japan for me was they have so many cool clothes and so many cool shoes oh, mm-hmm. and none of them fit me. Like not mm-hmm. one thing. Yeah, I tried on the largest pair of blue jeans in the entire store <laughs> in the like the town where I live where I went shopping and I I couldn't pull them up past yeah, my size. Like it just it just didn't yeah, there was there was no way to buy pants. So when I when I first asked you to do this, you emailed <laughs> that you thought it sounded interesting, but that you were applying for this new job. And that you wouldn't know anything mm-hmm. about it until the new year. Mm-hmm. And then we got back in the new year. And then I don't, rem- I don't remember exactly how it happened. But anyway, you got the job. Mm-hmm. And now you work yes. for this crazy quantum computing company. Mm-hmm. And they have stringent rules about what you can and can't say about the company. So what can you tell me about what you're doing now? Or, or why, why did you want to start working for a quantum computer company? And how, how did this come about? Like, what's, what's the deal? Like, and were you tired of just playing with lazy? Like, just tell, tell me what's going on. How did it happen? Sure. Well, so there's actually a step that we haven't covered, which has to do with public policy. So backing up a little bit to work towards your question, 
I finished up my year in Japan. I was working at a national lab there and went to graduate school to study lasers in Florida. And then when I finished graduate school, I spent a year working at a small startup company in Florida that did sort of applications of lasers for aerospace stuff. And my spouse, who we got married during graduate school, finished about a year after me. And then we together moved to the Washington, D.C. area where I got uh, a laser development-specific job where I was building these LiDAR systems I was mentioning. We were there for about three years when we sort of made the unusual decision to leave our jobs and go travel. So we actually just packed up our entire apartment, kept only a 5 by 5 by 10 foot high storage unit worth of our things. Everything else went and took backpacks and spent 18 months, visited 30 countries. That's insane. That sounds awesome. <laughs> it was it was amazing. We spent a lot of time, about six months in Central and South America, getting to work on my Spanish, but also see kind of like the diversity of Spanish and the diversity of cultures in the Spanish-speaking world and just try all the food. We ate so much street food and had all kinds of weird and interesting adventures and saw amazing things and it was it was great. I'm I'm really glad we did it, and I'm really glad we did it when we did because if we had been on travel when the pandemic hit, everything would have been very different. We traveled from a May 2017 to January 2019, and during that time, I decided I wanted to apply for a congressional fellowship that I was familiar with because I had been doing these things called congressional visits days, and these are events that are organized by professional societies. So my professional society was an optics professional society. And what they do is they round up their members and bring them to Washington, D.C. and say, okay, this is how you talk to congressional staff. This is what's going on on the Hill right now. And we want to ask for X, Y, Z, which could be, you know, signing onto a letter or adding the words optics and photonics to an existing bill, something related to sort of promoting research and science specific to optics in a legislative forum. So I had done this five or six times and really just found going and talking to Hill staff invigorating. And it was, of course, especially exciting if you actually got to talk to the member. We got actually pulled into the House once to talk to a representative from Pennsylvania. And he was like, all right, we got to talk for five minutes. Okay, I have to go vote. I'm going to go vote. Comes back and then like can talk again. It was really exciting to feel like these are people who are making decisions about policy and large amounts of money and how certain things get done. And the idea that I could use kind of my story and my background to encourage them to do something that I thought would be really beneficial to my community was sort of very powerful to me. And I found it really exciting. And you know, anytime we did the training for the congressional visits days, they would also say, hey, if you're interested, if you like this stuff, apply for the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences Congressional Fellowship. You can go with your, you know, with your terminal technical degree. You can go work on Capitol Hill for a year and use your science background to you know, make the world a better place. And I thought that sounded amazing. And so uh, while we were traveling, I made the decision to apply for this fellowship. Are you a doctor? Yes, I have a doctorate. I didn't know that. You're I think you're the <laughs> you're the third doctor I've had on. Oh, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I got my yeah, my master's and my PhD in in optics. Well, uh, congratulations. Uh, and also congratulations nice. on getting married. I ha- I didn't even realize you were married. 
<laughs> yes, thank you. Yeah. Uh, we've been married for over 10 years now. Wow. And okay. Yeah. It's, Did it's I know a, that? It, I don't remember. I might have mentioned it briefly in like a paragraph of this is the last, you know, 20 yeah. years since we talked. Kind or, yeah, of thing. <laughs> so like if, if you missed that detail. It's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyway. Sorry. Congressional. Blah, blah. So I, I applied for for this fellowship while we were traveling. Which was, you know, I'm sitting in a hostel in Sofia, Bulgaria, working on my thing. And then I'm sitting in a hostel in Marrakesh in Morocco, working on my thing. And then we had this weird transition where Morocco was actually our last stop on our journey. And then we flew to Des Moines, Iowa and lived with my in-laws for several months. And I kind of went through the interview process, which was pretty, it's a pretty intense interview and made it through, got selected and accepted, went back to actually work at my old company for a few months as a contractor, and then started my my policy fellowship. I got to work on a Senate subcommittee, and I had a portfolio associated with, you know, how do you make the federal government more energy efficient? And it was, <laughs> Good luck with that. It was like a huge, a huge <laughs> thing to tackle and think about. And I, I learned how bills are written and how they kind of go through the legislative process and how people kind of interact and get things done on the Hill. And it was, it was super fascinating. I, I loved my office. I had some really great people who I, I still talk to occasionally. While I was doing that, though, Dan was looking for uh, work in the D.C. area and wasn't really finding something that was the right fit. I had now hauled him to D.C. twice, first for my dream laser job and now for my, my dream policy fellowship. And I wanted to make sure that he had something that he really enjoyed. And so at some point in that process, I said, you know, look wherever you want to to find the right job for you. You know, because it was important to me. He he basically made sacrifices in his, in his career for me twice and was kind of struggling. And I said, you know, I, I want you to be happy. I want you to find something that's the right fit for you. And so he found his sort of his perfect uh, dream job here in Boulder, Colorado. And I said, well, you have to take it. We're moving to Colorado. And so he moved out before I did. So I was still doing, I was still living in D.C., working on my fellowship. It's a one-year fellowship. And he moved out at, like, the end of 2019. So we, like, knew that COVID was coming. We weren't sure exactly when. And then, of course, you know, a few months later in March, everything got shut down. I got sent home from the Hill. Basically, all everyone got cleared out of the Hill, and we all became work from home. And of course, I couldn't really travel to see him. And so it was a it was a weird period of time where I was kind of waiting to see, am I going to get to go back into the building? You know, it's like kind of a limited time frame of me getting to do this fellowship. Do I get to go back in the building? And at some point it became clear, no, we're, we're never going back to the building, or at least not within the time frame of my fellowship. So towards the end of my fellowship, I moved to Colorado and finished my fellowship remotely and began figuring out what is what is the next thing I want to do. And I was really focused on doing more policy work. I didn't want to just have this one year kind of blip and not use it. I wanted to find something where I'd take all the knowledge that I had acquired and, and continue developing it. It was a struggle because my fellowship had a fair amount of sort of weight in DC because people were familiar with it and people familiar with people who were, you know, alums of the program and what they were capable of, whereas it's a foreign concept here in Colorado. It was able to kind of get me in the door for interviews, but I wasn't really finding what I was kind of hoping to find. And so I ended up deciding 
that I would, you know, I would just take anything that I that was policy related. And so I ended up as a legislative aide, which is typically you're like an early 20 something interested in going into politics if you're serving as a legislative aide, because it's a part time job. You're only working when the legislature is in session, which in Colorado is January to May. But I said, you know, I, I'll learn something about how, how Colorado legislature works. It'll be a good experience. And it was. I was really happy with you know, what I what I learned, it was super interesting to go from an environment where I was one of a staff of like, I don't know, 25, 30 people to becoming my my legislator's only staff person for a significant period of time. So learning to multitask, learning how to handle scheduling and running social media. And I got to write remarks for my legislator. And, you know, she read them at committee meetings and on the the Senate floor and getting to having to do the research for those remarks was one of my favorite, my favorite part of my job is because, you know, she wrote a bill on tax benefits related to beetle kill pine wood. And I had no idea what any of that meant, but I need to be able to write like some good remarks for when it gets introduced in committee. So I had to go do research on that topic and like learn everything I could on that topic in order to 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 write something down for her. And that was really exciting. I you know, we discussed how I have these all these eclectic interests. So I never knew what that bill was going to be that I'd be having to research and write stuff up about. And so I learned all kinds of interesting things about, you know, how 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 train horns are legislated and how we handle certain judicial issues and like what pine beetle killwood is and what, what, uh, what is that what exactly what is that <laughs> there is a pest called pine beetle that kills trees and all trees or pine trees <laughs> pine trees so it's like particular trees when it kills the tree, it ends up leaving this kind of blue stain in the wood that people have decided is aesthetically pleasing. So what happens is the state of Colorado offers a tax incentive to businesses to go harvest the wood because the wood stands for like three to five years after the tree has been killed and is basically kind of sitting there as potential fuel for wildfires. Having it removed is important and beneficial, but it's also a huge undertaking to to harvest it. So there are companies that specialize in making furniture out of this particular type of wood with its kind of interesting blue stain. It's very practical. And to encourage those businesses to be in business and to to harvest the wood and make those products, Colorado offers uh, a tax incentive. Knowing that I was going to be working from home for an extended period, even once we kind of come out of the pandemic... I wanted a new standing desk and I oh. actually have sitting up in my in my office a beautiful uh, beetle killwood desk that I had made. Pretty my, sweet. My treat to myself. Yeah, my treat to myself. I wanted something unique. Yeah, well, yeah. Nice nice wooden furniture is uh it's a simple thing in <laughs> life. It's a luxury, but it's it's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Lasts a lifetime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so so to kind of circle back and to get to the question that you asked me like 15 minutes ago, and I'll see. I transitioned out of that job and wanted to go back to study or not studying to, to working in optics. And I said, you know, I think I'm ready to go back to optics. And, you know, I'd really love to find a job where I could use my policy experience and my technical background. But that's kind of a unicorn job. So I'm going to go do optics and we're going to we're going to figure that out. And I was applying for optics jobs. I actually got recommended to apply to Cold Quanta by my spouse's boss, who knows the CTO of Cold Quanta. And he's like, oh, it's 
you should apply there. And so I looked at it and thought they had a number of roles that are really exciting. And, you know, my first job out of graduate school was at a startup company. And so I like I knew I liked the kind of startup atmosphere. And I interviewed for actually a bunch of different roles, but we weren't really finding the right fit for me. There's a lot of optics involved in quantum computing or making quantum sensors, but it's really there's an aspect of AMO, which is atomic, molecular, and optical physics that I didn't have that more physics-y component. I had the optics, but not as much of the physics-y stuff. So we weren't really finding the right fit. And then the uh, CEO came back to me and said, hey, why don't we make a role for you where you get to do kind of more government relations and policy stuff, but we also are kind of leveraging your technical background. And I said, that sounds amazing. And that is how I ended up coming on board with, with Cold Quanta. Right on. So your role is a blend of all your, well, not all your knowledge, but your education and your previous job as a laser mm -hmm. person. That is interesting. So you're talking to lawmakers, essentially. What are you talking about? That's a very good question. We are talking about ways to support quantum industry and quantum education and kind of trying to educate or flesh out the ideas of what quantum technology is and what it can do for legislative offices. There's a lot of legislation that is having the word kind of quantum put into it as this is an important technology, but quantum is this like this super complex topic that, you know, I I have a PhD in optics. It's a very related field and I have been asking questions to people for months and I still I I don't really know how a quantum computer works still, right? So it's a, this is very complex topic that's hard to explain, but has all this potential to do all these different sort of amazing things. And so trying to, to just talk to legislative offices and be like, here's, you know, here's us, here's what we do. Because telling a personal story is, I think, always more powerful than here is a list of facts. So sort of using our company and its history and kind of what we do as that frame of reference for here's how we kind of frame and explain quantum technology. And then here are all the amazing things we're planning to do and that like have the that quantum has the potential to enable. And how do we create support for that legislatively and through the government? Well, I think it's good that, that someone is talking to the government about it. Because as you've seen, many people in the government don't even understand how Facebook works. Now, like you say, they're, they're adding quantum to lots of different documents all willy-nilly. It kind of reminds me of throwing the word cyber on things if it had to do with computers in the <laughs> 90s. Like cyberspace, cyber crime, what have you. Or E in front of things because it's electronic. <laughs> now quantum is something akin to that. I'm not going to pretend to understand what quantum really means. My, my understanding of it is a very pop science understanding of it. I'm just wondering, aside from the government, who are the concerned parties? Who is interested in quantum computing? Uh, well, I mean, there's actually a pretty broad quantum industry with some pretty big players. IBM, Amazon... And you know, a number of very large companies are working on quantum projects of, of different scales. But then, there's, of course, there's an entire ecosystem of smaller players like Cold Quanta. 
And then there's not just make the quantum computer. There is make the software that you can use to interact with the quantum computer, which is a very complex topic. And then there is how do you write the program to get the answer you want? How do you create the algorithm to have the computer execute the things it needs to in order to give you the answer to the calculation that you want? Then there's all kinds of things that aren't quantum computers. There are sensors, which, which Cold Quanta works on too. And this is actually, a, I think, a really cool thing. Someone described a Rydberg atom, which is what you use for a quantum sensor, as a big floppy atom that's very sensitive. It is an atom that you shine a laser at and you excite its sort of outermost electron to a really big high energy state. So the electron is only kind of vaguely hanging on to its nucleus. And because it's so far away, because it has such a loose connection with its nucleus, it becomes incredibly sensitive to radio frequencies. And so now you can use kind of an atom in a small box excited with a laser to sense things in where in the traditional method you would have to have this giant system that requires a lot of energy to run. And so you can, you can make sensors, you can make clocks, and then if you combine inertial sensors with clocks, we have the next generation of GPS, which will be QPS, and you won't have to talk to a satellite. You'll have uh, you know, a, a box in your car that just knows where you are because it's so sensitive in terms of, I know how far you've moved and in what direction and how much time it took you to get there. So we have to be here. That's that, insane. And yeah. So that, I mean, that's the, some of these are like a ways out from really existing. They have it in your car, but these are sort of the, the exciting potentials that like quantum technology has as a whole. And so it's, it's a whole ecosystem of not just like different applications, but the different aspects of the different applications. Because trying to, trying to do all of the different things, like trying to make a quantum computer and know how to design all the algorithms and make all the software and have it interfaceable is a huge and vast set of tasks. And so some people are just like, we're going to be a quantum software company and we are going to work on developing software that will interact with the different architectures. And that, that's another thing is like the way Cold Quanta is making a quantum computer is very different from the way IBM is making their quantum computer. And people have all these different architectures. And that's kind of one of the exciting things to watch and see how it turns out is like what architecture becomes the dominant architecture. Of course, Cold Quanta has made their bet on their approach with the Cold Atom approach, but there are there are people who use vacancies in diamonds, nitrogen vacancies in diamonds. There are superconducting qubits. There's just there's all kinds of just amazing different science going on. As we're at that stage where no one can truly know which one is going to win. Like Cold Quanta, we've made our bet. We think that's the one, and of course, every company has done the same. But we, you know, only time will tell what what is the sort of the, the victor of the race. So yes. Yeah, so, well, how long is the race? That is a question I feel ill-equipped to answer. <laughs> it's tough because... Decades? Years? My moderately informed guess is, you know, 10 years. What does that look like? 10 years until we can game the stock market? Like 10, <laughs> 10, 10, 10 years till what? Like what? Yeah. So, I mean, again, this is this is why I feel ill-equipped to answer this question, because it, like, it depends on what technology you're talking about. One of the challenges with quantum computing is having low noise. So we're in this era of quantum computing where it's like sort of small, noisy quantum computers, where you have a handful of qubits that you're, you're able to use for calculations. What's qubits a qubit? <laughs> <laughs> 
A cubit is version. This is what you get for getting interviewed by a dummy. <laughs> <laughs> You're not a dummy, not at all. Uh, no, it's, it's a good question. So a, a cubit is a quantum version of a classical bit. So in your computer, you have hardware that is, you know, at any given moment, either a zero or a one. Yeah, okay. And the encoding of those zeros and ones is the information that you manipulate to have the computer do all the things. And the qubit, the quantum bit, instead of existing as only zero or only one, exists in a combination of those states. So it is some amount zero and some amount one at any given moment, and that is changing rapidly. The fact that you can have your, your qubit in a superposition of two states at once is kind of the crux of what uh, enables a quantum computer to do different things than the classical computer, which is only going to be zero or only going to be one. That's kind of the the magic sauce yeah. that makes a quantum computer. And so what the qubit is physically is architecture dependent. So, so cold quanta, we use cold neutral atoms. So we take lasers in a vacuum cell and we have the atoms in the vacuum cell isolated from their environment and we use the lasers to cool and trap them and make them very, very cold. And when you can think of, of cold being stillness and heat being movement, so we, we are extracting heat from them in such a way that they, as they get colder and colder, they move less and less and less. Then when they get cold enough, they stop behaving in a classical fashion. They're not an atom bopping around in the air, bumping into things and moving very quickly. They are very, very still. And that elimination of noise and heat from the environment allows them to actually, for their quantum mechanical properties, to be their dominant method of, of existing instead of their classical properties. I am not equipped to explain superconducting qubits. I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, equipped to level. understand it. So I, 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 I'm... <laughs> but, but, but superconducting qubits are able to create the superposition of zero and one. You're just not using an atom. You're using a superconducting yeah. qubit. And then there's a you know nitrogen vacancy in diamond that you can also will be the superposition of zero and one. So it's, it's anything that you can use to access its quantum mechanical properties uh, isolating it from sort of the classical space around it, if that makes any sense. It just sounds like science fiction, like trying to make the electronic organic or something. There is no real difference, I guess, if you break it down. There are all electrical impulses in, in organic beings, but it just sounds like trying to translate the crude electronics that humans have developed into something more organic. Is that a crazy interpretation? No, I, I like that analogy. I like that analogy. I think it's. I think that has interesting applications for sure. Um, I like. I like it. I'm sort of fascinated. I might read more about it to to learn more about quantum computing. I like the idea of it because I'm kind of a. I just like technology. I think that these things are fascinating. I think that when people can do these things, it it blows my mind. I just like the the idea that someone can think these things up and then put a certain amount of effort and energy into it and a team of people can make it happen. I also find it terrifying <laughs> because it, it just seems like something that could totally get out of control and get out of control, like just change everything for the better or for the worse. I'm sure that it's not going to be either perfect or imperfect. It's not going to be devastating or the greatest thing that ever happened. It's going to be someplace in between, but it's, it's, it's a scary thing. Because it's so incomprehensible, I feel, by most people. I, I find that it's uh, really an intense subject. 
I think it will get to the point where when the technology is developed further, that it will become something that people understand how to interface with, even though they don't know necessarily like how the core of it works. Yeah. Like I drive my car. I honestly don't, <laughs> don't know really know exactly how my engine works. No, right? but you understand the concept of a, an internal combustion engine. It explodes. Sort of. It harnesses the power of the explosion. <laughs> <laughs> sort of. Sort of. Yeah. But also like my computer, like I, I don't know how the software was written or exactly how the hardware works interface with software i just know how to use it and what it what it can do so i think it's going to head in that direction where you don't really need to understand how the quantum physics works but you will grow up you know someone will grow up with a quantum computer in their house and they will understand intuitively how it can do certain things that their other computer can't. Or their computer will be a combination of classical hardware and quantum hardware. And they'll be like, oh, I need to tick the flip the little slider to say use quantum capacity for this and it'll do it for me. And, and you know, I, I think it is super hard to understand. And so it's very hard to to build and to legislate and to plan around. But I believe that it it is going to continue to develop and it is going to do some of the amazing things that people are predicting and then it may not be able to do others. But then there's a whole set of amazing things it'll do that no one knows to predict yet, right? Like when the laser was invented, no one knew what to do with it. And now like lasers do everything. I think it's going to be really similar where there's going to be there's going to be stuff they're like, oh, yeah, it'll be useful for this. And then we'll discover a whole additional range of things that it will be really helpful for. I have to ask, and maybe you don't know this because you're relatively new at the company. Is there a design department at these places that develop quantum computers? Because I feel like every single time I see a picture of a quantum computer, it's like this beautiful steampunk looking thing with tubes <laughs> and well-organized wires. They they really go out of their way to make it look as non-clunky as possible. It, they look like these beautiful turbine machines I think it depends on the company. Like some companies, I think I think IBM's picture of like how they've enclosed their quantum computer with like something that looks like steel and then glass and it's they've done that. But not everyone has sort of gone to that length of design. So there are ugly ones. It's a spectrum. There yes, there are there are quantum <laughs> computers that are not super packaged. As much as I appreciate the beauty of the the pictures I've seen, it seems like it would be a, a lot more effective to just, you know, put it in an air conditioned room or something. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I yeah. Don't know, I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> well, I mean, so there's there's two ways to kind of think about it. Is on one hand, there is going to be quantum computing that's just like a server farm where you don't have to be anywhere near the quantum computer. And you can just, you know, type into it and access it on the cloud and do your quantum computing and you never have to see it. That quantum computer doesn't have the kind of space constraint and packaging constraint that you would want for something that you would like own in your house. I think there is always going to be like, a, a quantum computer like in a server rack yeah, that's totally utilitarian um, we, we don't quite have that yet, but that's where it's going is you will have like a server farm, a quantum server farm with just like quantum computers in racks. It will be very kind of similar in concept to our current server farms. But then you're going to have, I don't know when we'll have it in our like phone like device, if phones will even exist by the time we get to having something that small in a quantum computer. But you're going to have something that 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 is is packaged and designed to be user-friendly and exists in the home and, you know, will have been 
considered aesthetically in a way that you won't have to worry for the stuff at the server farm. We won't have to communicate with people in the future because the <laughs> the quantum computers will decide for us what's going to happen. And then we will just follow the plan that they print out for us at, or print out broadcast to the chips in our brains every morning. <laughs> I think that that sounds like a very interesting piece of dystopian fiction. I to know, read, but, but that's, but I that's what I, I mean. That's, that that's sort of like, that that's like the negative <laughs> stuff that I think about. And it's not sure. I, I like the, the thought that these things could, let's say, supply chain problems. It can solve supply chain problems. It can mm-hmm. it can uh, uh, think about the applications for self-driving cars and solving traffic. I like all the positive things that it could solve. But then I'm just wondering. Is solving these problems, yeah, I mean, solving any problem, I I suppose, has the potential to create new problems. And yeah, it's just all very confusing. And I just don't have the brain power to to understand the bigger Mm. picture. And I don't know that even the super geniuses that you work with, I I think that a lot of people who do these sorts of things do them because they're like, this is awesome. And I have the brain power to make it happen. And then, but they don't really fully understand the, the, the full scope of of, of the possibilities and nobody does. Mm-hmm. And that's not a fault of theirs. It's yeah. just what humans are and sure. uh, it's going to happen anyway. So yeah, I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> I'm, I'm just talking here. <laughs> yeah. I, I, so I take comfort in the fact that I feel like while we are developing all these interesting new technologies and involving culturally that like human beings, I don't think fundamentally change that much. I think if you look at the advent of print books being more widely available, there are news stories about, oh, books are going to ruin people's ability to socialize with each other. They're just going to read their book, they're facing their book, and they're not going to talk, and it's going to ruin conversation and human interaction. And then you get to, like, computers and cell phones, and people are saying the exact same thing that they were, you know, however long ago it was, that people were freaking about, like, books being a bad thing for human interaction. And so... You know, we are developing new things and new technologies, and that is changing the way we do certain things. But I think the fundamental of what makes us human has existed for a very long time and is very, very slow changing. So I'm not super worried. I think it's I think it's going to be the same thing as like, oh, cell phones changed our lives. They created some problems. They helped with others. And it's going to it's going to be one of those things like we're talking about is it's there will be good and there will be bad and it will be sort of integrated into our lives. And then we will kind of forget what it was like without it before. Word up. Should we stop then? (laughs) Is that that seems like a good place to stop. Do you have uh, anything that you'd like to share? Oh, we didn't talk about Fire Academy. You mentioned that in the in the email the other day. What the hell is Fire Academy? Fire Academy is the process that a fire department puts you through to make you officially a firefighter instead of a trainee. And so I started volunteering as a firefighter about a year ago. I applied to a fire department for a volunteer position in kind of the wake of the 2020 Colorado wildland fire season, which there were a lot of fires burning in California. There was a ton in Colorado. It was one of the biggest wildland fire years in the history of Colorado. And there were days when it was snowing ash and days where it was apocalyptic yellow at 11 in the morning. And I thought maybe this is something 
that I could, in my own little way, try and help and do something about. That's kind of what got me into the idea. And I have this sort of weird history with with the idea of being a firefighter. Definitely, I was one of those kids who liked fire trucks are so cool. Like, it'd be so cool to be a firefighter. But I never, like, it never went beyond that, like, little kid idea. Fire trucks are like the quantum computers of cars. (laughs) Yes, they are. I love it. Uh, So, yeah, so when I was actually in Japan, applying to graduate schools, really nervous, like, what if I don't get into graduate school? What am I going to do with my life? I don't know what to do with my life if I don't go to graduate school. I was like, well, could I be a firefighter? That sounds cool. I ended up kind of researching career firefighter jobs. And I was like, oh, that's really hard. I don't know if I can do all these things. Not realizing how much of the fire service is volunteer-based. I had heard of volunteer firefighting, but I didn't really know what it was. And, and you know, I did research and, and found this department, uh, Timberline Fire Protection District. And they had a lot of really good information about their department and how you could volunteer and how they always want volunteers. I, you know, I called the number on the website and talked to the deputy chief who's in charge of training and decided to apply. And as a volunteer firefighter, so this is my department is what you call a combination department. So there are a handful of people who are career, mostly the officers. And then the firefighters are pretty much just they're volunteers like me. And, you know, they commit to a certain amount of time a week. And so having like a broad enough set of people that there's always someone there to help out is kind of important and why people are like, oh, more volunteers, we need more people. I love Timberline. It's been a super positive experience, a really welcoming space, and I get to work with really cool people to try and and help the community and make the world a better place. And I get to learn how to use crazy awesome power tools as part of that job. So I, I showed up a very blank slate. I didn't have any experience with fire service or first response or EMS or anything. I definitely have a, a tendency to seek novelty. And so that was kind of candy land for me. It's also very uncomfortable to show up and be like, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> show me how to do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I showed up to the fire station for the first time, not having ever met the lieutenant I was going to be reporting to or Um, you know, knowing what I would be doing or what is expected of me, really, like I had a general idea, but the actual like rubber hits the road mechanics, like what am I supposed to do when I show up? Am I supposed to wear a radio? Do I go find a radio? Like, where do I put my gear next to the engine? And just I knew nothing. So that's like kind of an uncomfortable spot to be in, but also really an exciting spot to be in. Uh, And so it's been a really amazing learning experience. It's a community that I feel at home with. It's a job that is fulfilling. And, and as a volunteer, I am an employee of the department, like, because you, you have to be covered by insurance and everything. So even though I'm not paid, I am an employee of this department and like a part of that community. I'm really, really happy that I got into it and got accepted. And I, yeah, I've, I've gone kind of full bore. I spent a semester class doing my EMT certification last fall. And you have to learn how to handle hazardous waste or has, hazardous materials incidents. You have to learn how to deal with you know, when, a, when, when a building's on fire, how do you search for people? How do you wear your PPE properly? How does the fire extinguisher work? How do you lay hose? How do hydrants, how do fire hydrants work? How do you drive the engine? Like, Yeah, I was thinking you're talking about the forest fires and, and mm-hmm. now you're talking about like the other stuff. So yeah. you have to learn the whole spectrum of where a fire could be. Yeah, I think it's different in different departments. Timberline has a very, like a lot of wooded area and wildland in it, but there's also residences. So we need to be prepared 
to report to a structure fire. We also need to be prepared to report to a wildland fire. Being equipped and certified for those things is the, is what I have to do to be considered an actual firefighter within the department instead of a trainee. Are you a firefighter now or are you still not, in training? Not until I finish academy. Uh, <laughs> assuming I pass everything by mid to late June, if all goes well, I will I will be able to say like I am a firefighter, which is like really exciting. That is super hardcore. I'm, it's super impressive. Thanks. Thanks. I'm I, I'm just I'm happy to be there and doing it and learning it. It's uh it's it's the thing that I'm happy to have in my life and like coming back to ballroom dancing. Like I wouldn't have time to do this and the amount of time I commit to ballroom dancing. So while I miss ballroom dancing, getting to learn new things and try new things and explore is super valuable to me. And so that's why, you know, the whole one door closes another opens thing is kind of a part of my my life philosophy. Right on. Thank you very much for being on the show. Awesome. Thank you for having me. It's been great to catch up with you. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll talk someday in the future, I'm sure. Yes, indeed. Indeed. I'm I'm excited to hear how it all comes out. All right, cool. I'm just going to say goodbye. Have a good evening. I will. And you too. That was Christina. I had no idea that she did so many things. I mean, I I knew that she did some stuff, but I wasn't aware of the extent to which she did those things. I love how she dives into whatever interests her, whether it's ballroom dancing, fighting fires, or the etiquettes of the political world. I can't say that I want to get involved with any of those things, but I truly envy her motivation. Also, I knew that quantum computing was complicated, but it sounds impossible to me. But you know, anything is possible if you can figure it out. Check out Christina's book, Sustainable Networking for Scientists and Engineers, at sustainablenetworking.net, and check the show notes for a direct download link. You can also find her on Twitter at Willis Christina, and you can learn more about her company at coldquanta.com. Thanks for being on the show, Christina. Also, thanks to Ed at boomcast.com for audio editing and post-production. That's B-O-O-M-K-A-A-S dot com. For any sort of audio needs you have pre- or post-production, just contact Ed. He'll hook you up. You can also check out feelfreetodeviate.com for all of the Feel Free to Deviate episodes. What is this? Episode 23. That means that there are 22 others that came before it. So, you know, go check it out. There are also charming thumbnail photos for each episode on the site. If you prefer social media to personal websites, please check me out on Instagram and Facebook at Feel Free to Deviate. And feel free to like, comment on, share, or otherwise interact with all my stuff. And great thanks to you, dear listener. I appreciate your time, and I hope you got something out of this episode. Coming up in two weeks, episode 24 will feature Andrew Whitehead. He points out that he may be the first strictly business guest on the show, but in true feel-free-to-deviate fashion, he has some history with the arts nestled in his past. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back in two weeks. Until then... Be excellent to each other.